the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Coming at you on 860 AM, the answer. It's AM 860, the answer. I think we're using another uh, call sign nowadays, the answer, Tampa Bay, or something like that. At any rate, AM 860theanswer.com is the station's website that I go to. And you can also reach me live. Listen to me 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time, by going to my website, drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. And click Listen Live or Join Me, and here I am. We had a great show last week, and I was appreciative of all the people that called in and offered uh, thoughts and opinions. And uh, you're certainly welcome to join me at any time. I'm at 877 877- Nine six nine eight six zero zero. That's eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. And uh, this is talk radio, so there you go. Well, I'm I'm really curious about all of the hoopla over President Trump's meeting with Vladimir Putin and what he said after the uh, after the meeting and the press conference that followed in Helsinki and the backlash from the left people calling him a traitor and treasonous and impeachable. And and now Panetta, who was under, I believe, uh, Obama and uh, has been in the government a good while. He thinks that the president should reveal the conversations that he had, what was discussed with Putin. And if he won't do that, then they want the interpreters to come in uh, testify before Congress. Of course, all of this is moot because the president, under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, has the power to negotiate treaties. That's his power. Now, he cannot finalize the treaties. The treaties have to go through the Senate and be ratified by a two-thirds majority. And the presidents have not been so good at getting their major treaties ratified, starting all the way back with Woodrow Wilson in World War One. the uh, treaty to form the League of Nations, which was the forerunner of the United Nations, was defeated by the Senate, and the Senate didn't like the uh, the agreement to end the war with Germany, and that was amended and changed, and by the time that even came to fruition, I believe Woodrow Wilson was already out of the office, and uh, Harding had taken over as president. 
also with the SALT treaties, which were the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, started in the late 50s, early 60s, and then uh, brought to fruition in the late 60s and early 70s. Neither SALT I nor SALT II was ratified by the, by the uh, Senate. So the presidents worked hard to get these treaties in place, and the START treaties, which were also to limit nuclear arms, uh, I don't think that was ever ratified by the by the Senate, and that was in the late 18, uh, 1980s and 1990s. So the presidents have not had a good track record with getting what they want through the Senate, and we can see a living example of this today where the Senate and the opposition is already lining up to say that no matter what you bring us, we're going to fight you on it. We can see this with the pick for the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh, and we're going to see this with any agreements or attempted agreements that the president makes with Russia, or for that matter, with, with any other major country that the Senate does not want to endorse. And so we're going to be at an impasse, at a logjam. And there's ways, of course, to get around a lot of this. You can have informal agreements. Uh, you can have ongoing negotiations. The problem with negotiations is you have to have both sides negotiating in good faith. And what does good faith mean? It means that you have no malice, you have no malintent, you're not out to get either party, uh, you're not out to harm each other, you're there because you sincerely have an ideal of what you want for your side of the equation with doing as little or no harm to the other side as possible, or not looking at it as doing harm to the other side. And, you know, these are never easy situations. And you have people who enter into negotiations or states or nations who enter into negotiations and they they don't have the best interest of either party at heart. There's not good faith negotiations. I can tell you this. I've been on a number of committees uh, of medical staffs over the years, and the one that stands out as the most onerous and the most unpleasant was when I was asked to be on a committee to rewrite the bylaws for our hospital. The hospital has uh, a, a sub group, a subdivision, which is the medical staff. And the medical staff has its own bylaws, which, of course, have to be approved by the executive committee of the medical staff and the board of trustees of the hospital. All these hospitals are incorporated uh, separately, even though they may be under HCA or uh, BayCare or some other larger health organization. They're each individually incorporated for legal and accounting reasons. And therefore, every hospital staff has to negotiate and write and pass its own bylaws. A lot of it's, you know, cookie cutter. A lot of it's boilerplate stuff and similar in all the medical staffs, but there are some nuances here and there depending upon the hospital. So I'm in this committee for two years and I'm in with several people, two of whom are completely and totally opposed to any change at all in the bylaws, Herman and David, I'll call them. And they would agree one week and the next week come back and disagree with what they had already agreed with. And they would go on and on and on, and they'd talk incessantly about all kinds of things, including how 
plot was being formed by the administration to take away the rights of the medical staff. And although there was a push by the hospital administration to liberalize their ability to hire physicians as opposed to having private physicians who uh, were on the medical staff, private in the community. And the difference between being hired by the hospital is they control your schedule, they you negotiate your salary and benefits with them, and they tell you when and where and what you can do within the scope of good medical practice and your abilities. Whereas a private physician applies to the hospital staff and still maintains his independence independence or her independence as a private practitioner who calls their own shots in terms of how much money they can take out of the practice. And of course, that depends on how much money you bring in, when they can take vacations and all of the other things that you would think of as, as being a self-employed individual. And of course, the success and failure of the practice lies on the shoulders of the people who are the owners of the practice. And I'm in private practice. And of course, David and Herman were in private practice, and they were highly suspicious and saw plots at every turn around every corner from the administration to interfere with their ability to practice medicine as private practitioners. Well, you know, this is all well and fine, but still the federal government uh, through JCO, JCO is the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation. The federal government does not want to be directly involved in dictating to hospitals and physicians. So they farm that out to JCO and to the states. And so the states are the ones who sit on the doctors and there are boards and the medical uh, board is one of the boards that's operated by the state and if you get into trouble or have problems or there's new things that come down or messages that have to be delivered to the doctors in the state, all that comes through the medical board. The state and the federal government can pass legislation and the state in Florida has recently passed a lot of new legislation regarding the uh, prescribing of narcotics. And it's become very, uh, very difficult and very tight and basically, it just adds more work to the physician that you have to fill out more paperwork, take more courses. But these things are items and agendas that are seen as important by the state and presumably the people of the state who are the ones who elect our representatives to the state. So at any rate, we have this medical staff and it has a bylaws and the bylaws have to be revised depending upon what the federal government and JCO want reflected in the bylaws of their desires and wishes. And so for two years, I sat in committee with these guys. And at the end of two years, I got up one day and I walked out. We never got anything done. I don't even know. And that's been five years, six years ago, maybe longer. And I don't know if we've ever updated the bylaws. I don't know if they've ever been passed. I don't know if any amendments have ever been made because of the obstructionistic attitude of a couple of physicians. And so when we enter into negotiations as a country with another country like North Korea, who does not come to the table in good faith, then we have a, a, a log jam. We have an impasse because we can never get past the first item, which is you need to denuclearize the peninsula, the Korean peninsula. 
We have not put weapons in South Korea, nuclear weapons. We have anti-missile missiles. And we've honored that part of the agreement that we've had informally with China and with North Korea since nothing has really been ratified. But the North Koreans are basically refusing up until recently to do this. We'll see if they come through with that. And as we can see, there have to be negotiations in private by the executive branch. The executive branch is the president and his, his cabinet departments. And the president, under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, has the absolute authority to negotiate all of these treaties, whether they're on war or on armaments or on trade or you name it, just about any aspect of negotiations between the United States and other countries first goes through the executive branch and then onward to the Congress where they're approved or disapproved. We have hundreds and hundreds of treaties, not only dealing with arms and armament uh, or peace negotiations or treaties. We have trade agreements. We have uh, cooperation agreements. We have intellectual agreements. I mean, we have agreements about everything and anything. And we don't think of these things on a day-to-day -day basis because we're a state or we are states within a union. And we have agreed that whatever treaties the federal government negotiates, uh, we just go along with it. And we can't make treaties between states. We can't have barriers to trade. We're an open society and we can travel anywhere we want in the United States and we can sell pretty much anywhere we want, although Obamacare did limit the ability of insurance companies, health insurance companies, to sell interstate. But overall, the states are pretty much open to do business with each other in any way they can. Not true with, with foreign governments, though. Not true at all. So we have to have somebody out there. We have to have a front man. And the front man is the president. And so when the left calls for the president to reveal what was discussed, of course, he doesn't have to. I mean, these are private negotiations. They'll get the public bill or recommendation from the president when he sends it to the, to the Senate for ratification. People say, well, how many departments are there anyway? Well, the, the federal government, the executive branch, the president oversees agriculture, commerce, defense, education, energy, health and human services, homeland security, housing and urban development, interior, justice, labor, also state, transportation, treasury, veterans affairs. And so all these departments are departments of, of the federal government under the executive branch, under the president. These are the president's departments and the uh, directors of these departments are his advisors. So the uh, secretaries, which they're called, except for the Department of Justice. He's the attorney general, or she's the attorney general. These are called secretaries, the heads of these departments, and he appoints all these heads, and even subheads. And he can hire and fire people as he pleases uh, within certain limits. So these departments are under his auspices. And the trade agreements are negotiated by Commerce Department. The Commerce Department has a department within commerce that does nothing but negotiate trade agreements. That's their job. And 
By doing so, they act on the president's behalf. The International Trade Administration is the Department of Commerce. And so the president will go and talk with Putin or the prime minister of Canada or the president of Mexico, and he'll say, look, uh, we want to redo the NAFTA agreement. NAFTA was the bill that, or the agreement that was the treaty that was ratified in the 1990s. Uh, and it opened up freer trade between the United States and Canada and got rid of a lot of the tariffs that had been in place. And it was seen as a way of elevating, uh, I'm sorry, United States, Canada, and Mexico. It was, a way of, it was seen as a way of elevating the Mexicans and helping them get up to the level of the middle class of the United States and Canada. Uh, has not been very successful, as the president has pointed out. How much it has hurt us is uh, not clear. How much it has helped us is not clear. But the president wants to renegotiate these, these treaties, and he certainly has every right to. Now, whether or not they get passed by the Senate is another story. Now, he can temporarily impose sanctions and quasi-treaties, but ultimately the Senate has to weigh in on this and give their imperator their stamp of approval. And so the agreements are initially handled by the, as far as trade is, is concerned, the International Trade Administration. And global markets are influenced and uh, enacted upon by this department through the okay of the president. And the International Trade Administration has a, a vision to foster economic growth and prosperity through global trade. The values are high, high standards of personal integrity and professional excellence, mutual respect and teamwork, creativity and individual initiatives. Uh, this all sounds good. You know, the FBI has, has standards and uh, rules and regulations and ethics and all that. And we see that it's not always uh, upheld by the FBI agents and the people that work in the FBI, as we see now with Strauss and a number of these people who are being called before the various committees of the House and the Senate for their misdeeds in the past election, the 2016 election. So we see that and we have problems with all of our departments. Why? Because there's human beings working in them and we have to keep an eye on that. We have Ian from Clearwater on the phone. Ian, what's up? Hey, thanks for taking my call, Doc. Sure. Hey, I just want to throw this out now that you guys are giving me a platform and maybe people of power can run with this. You know, since we since we took down all the evil Confederate monuments and the Confederate regalia and everything over the last three years, because we took 21st century standards and we applied them retroactively to the Confederacy, I, I propose that turnabout being fair play and all things equal we take our 21st century standards vis-a-vis -vis Trump and Putin, and we apply that to Franklin D. Roosevelt. So I hereby demand that everything connected with Franklin D. Roosevelt be destroyed and thrown down a memory hole in the race history, because FDR said good things about Uncle Joe Stalin. FDR met several times with Uncle Joe Stalin, and FDR's cabinet and everything, his government was infiltrated by red agents working for Uncle Joe Stalin. So, obviously, ergo, FDR was a Russian-Soviet commie collaborator 
he must go. Everything with FDR must be destroyed. So okay, Ian. Let me, that needs let me, to be proposed. Let me address and, uh, that. We need to bring okay. that to the Democrats. Okay? Thanks for taking right. my call. Sure. Um, let me address that. The, the monuments that you see to the various presidents in Washington, D.C. are not erected by the federal government. The land is sold to private groups, and the private groups raise the money for the memorials, for uh, like the Lincoln Memorial and, and the uh, FDR Memorial and the various memorials that are, have been placed for presidents. And there's not many of them. Jefferson Memorial. I think the Jefferson Memorial actually went up under FDR, and he wanted to make a saint out of uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the titular founder of the Democratic Republicans, which morphed into the Democratic Party, and which was opposed to the Federalist Party, which uh, kind of died after the election of Jefferson in 1800. And then we didn't see a, a really major party being reborn until the 1850s and 60s with the Republican Party, which we have today. So part of this, I mean, it's there are legitimate arguments to say, why is the federal government spending money to uh, – make a saint out of FDR. They're not, as far as I know. I mean, uh, my understanding, and I may be wrong, is that a lot of this is private and individuals and uh, charitable trust and that sort of thing. So it may be difficult to take down any of the monuments to any of the presidents in Washington, D.C. because of the erection of these things by private groups and not by the federal government. Now, when we talk about statues in cities and states to Confederate uh, uh, heroes, and I know in Louisville, the one that I saw on a daily basis was uh, Breckenridge, and they want to take that down. Nice statue. I mean, if you don't know anything about the Civil War, you wouldn't know who he was or what he had to do with the Civil War. But there's a small vocal group of people who want to take it down because it has something to do with the Civil War. Now, I haven't been back to Louisville in a while where I grew up, so I don't know if it's still standing. But these are erected by the cities and by the states and not by private individuals, from what I understand. So there's, there's a big difference in terms of the legalities of taking something down because the people say through their governments, the cities, the states, federal government, the counties, the various jurisdictions, that they no longer want that statue there or they no longer want that memorial there for what it represents. And although I don't agree with it, I think it's kind of silly to try to rewrite history. Uh, it, it falls into another category than what it would if we think of the of the. FDR Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is uh, uh, a really a, a, a major and grand work for, for the, the Washington monuments. I mean, it's, it's something to see, even if you disagree with, with FDR, which I, I disagreed with a lot of what he did. And I think that he did not understand the great threat that the Soviets and, the, uh, and Stalin uh, posed to the United States. However, the monument to him is not erected by the government. So, you know, there's not a whole lot that we can do unless we want to go up there and just deface it ourselves. And I don't think that's the way to do it. So the revisionist history writers, I think the best that we can do is to 
continue to speak out and say, no, that's not our history. And I do this every day at the lunch table with the doctors and especially with the guys who are from other countries. A lot of the guys from India, they don't know our history and they have some preconceived notions. One of the guys said, oh, well, you're like Australia. You were founded as a nation of criminals. No, we weren't. We were founded as a nation of, uh, of people who were being persecuted religiously. We were founded as a nation of entrepreneurs. We were founded as a nation of people who wanted more freedom and more opportunity, which wasn't available in England. So we are not a nation of criminals, or at least we were not founded as a nation of, as a penal colony or criminal colony. But there's so much misunderstanding of who we are and what we are and what powers different branches of the government have and how that's enacted, that it's necessary for us as the harbingers of history and of knowledge to speak out and say, look, that's not the, the, the accurate true story. And, you know, I've said this on the show before. Yes, the Civil War was fought by the Northeast on the basis of slavery and the abolition of slavery. But for a lot of Southerners, it was fought as a state's right issue and also as a tariff issue because the Northeasterners were trying to impose protective tariffs. And we're talking about a trade war again with with President Trump and the protective tariffs were there to protect the nascent, the growing baby industries of the Northeast, the Industrial Revolution it did. But the South was the part of the country that was bringing in the hard dollars because it was selling goods overseas. It was selling crops, tobacco, wheat, cotton, all kinds of things that were being sold as uh, produce, as uh, agricultural products that were grown in the Southeast. And so the tariffs would have hurt the Southerners the most because in retribution to the tariffs imposed by the Northeast on goods coming in from England and Europe, they would impose tariffs on goods coming from the United States, which were primarily agricultural. And so there were more aspects to the Civil War than just slavery. Slavery was certainly the biggest aspect of it, but the South had harbored ill will towards the Northeast and vice versa since the founding of the Republic in the 1780s. And so we have to take a closer look and we have to remind people that there's much more to this aspect of history than just slavery. And there's much more to this aspect of history than just saying that, well, this is this is a throwback to an age that we don't want to think about or have anything to do. So let's take down all these statues that these cities and states have put up. Well, it's certainly the rights of the of the governments to take down what they have put up. I mean, it's it's the the powers that we give to them. But we also have the right to speak out and say, wait a minute. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's make sure we remember our history, because if we don't remember it, then we're bound to repeat it. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If we don't stop and think about our history, we're going to end up in another civil war. We're so far apart on so many issues. And, and, and that's, a, that's really a sad thing, because on so many issues, we're together. So we pick a few things and we fight over them. And you're always going to have these obstructionists in any negotiations. Well, not always, but you're going to have obstructionists in negotiations like we have with the North Koreans, like I had with the 
doctors on the bylaws committee, and they finally came to me aside and said, we want to obstruct. We don't want any changes. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, the federal government and JCO, they want these changes, and if we don't change them, we may not get fully reimbursed by Medicare when the hospital goes to bill. And if the hospital's not making money, then it won't be here. And if it's not here across the street from my office, I'm going to have a harder life. And my real estate's going to fall in price. And my practice may not do as well. But uh, they didn't see it that way. And I don't think we've ever changed the bylaws. And it's similar with what's going on in North Korea. Although we have had agreements in spirit that have been made, there's really been no hard progress towards limiting the nuclear weapons programs. It looks like they've stopped testing for the moment. And that's a good thing. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, that a lot of these negotiations have to be conducted in private and that it's not in anybody's best interest to let the substance of the negotiations and all of the nuances and all of the details that are brought up be in the public's hands because it may create debates where there are really not going to be any debates that the final product that's presented to the public and to the Congress to the Senate have little to do with some of the side conversations and little vignettes that transpired as we saw with Putin and the president and Trump. I'm not sure what was so wrong about what he said. Uh, I was sitting with the COO of the hospital, the chief operating officer, and he's number two behind the hospital administrator, we now call him the CEO, the chief executive officer. And he and I were talking and we both said, I, I'm not sure what they're so upset about what the president said in the press conference in Helsinki last week after he had the meeting with Putin. I'm, I, I didn't really get it why they were so upset. Now, I can understand now that the way things were phrased may have been difficult and may have smacked of collusion in the minds of people who already think there's a plot here between Trump and the Russians. I mean, I don't see it. Uh, the guy's imposing more sanctions uh, than any other president in recent history against the Russians. He's also uh, sent more anti-missile missiles to Poland and has conducted troop maneuvers on the and Ukraine border. So I think that we're seeing a real uh, push by the president to let the Russians know that we're not going to allow them to come tromping through North, Northern Europe and then Western Europe. And, you know, we have to think about all of these things in terms of history. In the 20th century, we saw the two great world wars, World War I, World War II, and all of the minor wars, and basically they were fought between Western Europe and Russia, the Germans in particular, and the Russians, who would rule Europe, the Teutons or the Slovaks. And so we still see animosity between the Germans and the Russians. And that's why we have to have NATO and have to hold the line there. But when I come back, I'll answer questions about the Russian-German conflict and how that has affected all of us over the past 
two centuries. Dr. Bill, I'll be right back. Go grab a cup of joe. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. A former chairman of the NTSB says duck boats like the one that sank in Missouri last week are not designed for commercial recreational use. James Hall says the boat's design, made back in the World War II era, is simply making it prone to the kind of accidents that killed 17 in Missouri. He says he doesn't believe there's a way to make the amphibious vessels truly safe, particularly in bad weather. A woman fatally shot as a gunman ran into a busy L.A. supermarket yesterday and took dozens of people hostage. He held them for three hours, then surrendered to police, and nobody else was hurt. Lawmen say after before taking the hostages, the man shot his grandmother seven times and wounded another woman. And the Israeli military has evacuated hundreds of members of Syrian rescue volunteers from the volatile frontier area near the Golan Heights and transported them safely to Jordan. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 727- 7-2-7-3-8-4-6-4-1-1. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. I've got an important message for listeners who share a strong commitment to God, family, and moral values. Health care is in crisis. With increasing premiums, claim issues, and out-of-network roadblocks, Obamacare just isn't working for many folks. You need to consider health sharing. Full health care plans that are saving families thousands of dollars a year without the hassle. Right now, Health Markets is bringing together faith-based Americans who think like you do and offering this great alternative for health care. With health sharing, there's no enrollment deadlines, high premiums, or soaring out-of-pocket costs, and they're exempt from the penalties of the Affordable Care Act. There's even plans to let you choose your doctor and find coverage for benefits like vision and dental. Health Markets can search nationwide health share providers for the right plan to fit your needs and budget. Discover this exciting health care option for believers. Their service is free. Call 800-409-7780. That's 800-409-7780. 800-409-7780. Do you love a hot dog or hamburger at the ball game? Then you need to bring your appetite to Spectrum Field every Monday. Your $14 ticket includes all you can eat. That's right, you can chow down on all of your ballpark favorites, like hamburgers and hot dogs and many other concession favorites. All you care to eat. Just $14 gets you a ticket to the game and all you can eat. Make sure you come hungry. Visit threshersbaseball.com. Threshers Baseball, get hooked. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. There's a high current risk in effect through Monday evening. Today, clouds and sun, breezy and humid with a couple of showers and thunderstorms. The high will be 90. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a shower and thunderstorm around. The low will be 79. 
Tomorrow, some sun, then turning cloudy with a couple of showers and a thunderstorm, mainly later. The high will be 87. Tuesday, cloudy with a thunderstorm. The high will be 86. That's your Accurate the Forecast. I'm Dan Pittman for AM860, The Answer. that's true in a lot of relationships, whether they're marital or parent-child or uh, states disagreeing with each other or nations disagreeing with each other. So but we got to keep working and we have to work first and foremost for what's in our best interest because self-preservation is the first law. If you don't get that one, the rest of the day is pretty well shot. Well, I'm talking about the president's powers to negotiate treaties and to hold conversations in private with leaders of foreign nations. And uh, that is certainly within his purview. He has that under Article 2, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. That's his area. Now, if there's a formal treaty that's negotiated, then that goes to the Senate for ratification. And the presidents have not had uh, good success with major arms limitation agreements and with various treaties over the past century or two. Uh, there's been a lot of times when they've been shot down. Not, I guess I shouldn't use that. that. That may not be appropriate for an arms treaty. But And we've seen a number of treaties that have gone through, arms control treaties, like Chemical Weapons Accord, uh, the Arms Limitation Agreements, Convention on limiting the number of armed forces in Europe, uh, FISAL material cutoff treaties, a number of treaties through the Geneva Protocol, the Geneva Convention on, on uh, warfare and what's okay and what's not. And by the way, not all countries subscribe to treaties like uh, the Geneva Convention on warfare. And a treaty such as that says that there are rules even in war, and that if you don't obey those rules, and you lose, then you're going to be tried for war crimes. Or even if you win, if it's a limited conflict, like in Iraq in the 1990s and the early 2000s, we had two conflicts there. And there were people around the world saying that the United States soldiers were committing atrocities. And there were even uh, reporters in our own country who condemned actions, uh, particularly at, at the detention facilities, and we saw some of that where the uh, captives who were considered terrorists were being, quote, quote, tortured. I don't know if they were really physically tortured, more um, emotional torture. But uh, apparently that was felt to be a war crime by some people around the world. And these things are governed by treaties such as the Geneva Convention. So when we go into a war... We have a set of rules that we have to live by and obey. And this goes all the way back to the founding of the Republic. John Adams wrote the rules of engagement for the United States Army and Navy. And 
President Washington, then General Washington, said this is how we're going to behave. And he even crossed the line at one point because it came to the attention of the Continental Army and to General Washington, President Washington, that captives, the British had captured a number of people at the Battle of New York at the beginning of the war, a number of our soldiers, and they were basically put in the holds of ships and kept there for years, and most of them died from uh, diseases, and uh, they were also mistreating our officers. And so Washington sent a note back through the lines to the to the British, and he said, if you mistreat any of our people, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to your officers that we capture. Of course, he would never have done that, but he wanted that threat there to try and protect his men. And he was a pretty righteous guy in that respect. And so we've had these agreements in place since the beginning of the Republic. Does that mean that they're always obeyed to the letter? No, of course not. You can't micromanage every soldier in the field and you can't stop every every single person from committing a, an atrocity. I mean, there's always going to be uh, a bad apple here and there. But when you're talking about a million man army in one or two incidences, it's, it's a pretty good track record. You know, it's well over 95% compliance. And in my practice, if I get 95% of things right all the time, I think I'm doing pretty good. The other 5%, well, if I get it wrong, then I have to make the appropriate amends and make the apologies and correct the mistakes. And overwhelmingly, they have not been life-threatening, but these things do happen. They do happen. And there's always going to be people like the guys I'm talking about who were in the bylaws committee with me. And I got to tell you the one story about David, one of the guys who was in the bylaws committee, finally drove me completely crazy. And I left the committee and said, I'm never going back. I'm not going to deal with these guys ever again. I'm sitting in the ICU at our hospital years ago, and there's a relatively young woman in her 30s who is struggling. She's in the ICU, so you would assume she's a critical care patient. And the nurses are upset because they can't get David, who's her attending physician, he was a pulmonary doctor, to call back and give them direction as to what to do because she's going down downhill. She's going down the tube. She's dying right in front of us. And so they asked me, would I step in? And I said, I mean, I, yeah, if you can't get a hold of, of David and there's nobody here to take care of the situation, then it falls on my shoulders. I'm the doctor there. I'm, I'm, I'm the captain of the ship at that moment. And so I went in and the patient was struggling to breathe and dying. And so I intubated her and saved her. And then we finally got a hold of David, and he chewed me out. What are you doing intubating her? She's a DNR. That means do not resuscitate. That means don't intubate her. Uh, excuse me, what is, what's she doing in the ICU then? The ICU is for people who we are going to try and save. If you're a DNR or a CMO or both, then you may not be appropriate for the ICU. There are certain times when it's appropriate if you want to give everybody everything you can without intubating them. But you know what? Even if, if that is already in the orders in your mind, but not on the chart, and the nurses don't tell me because they don't have that order, then how am I supposed to act on that? So it's, it's confusing when you go into negotiations with people who are not clear in their own minds about what they want, 
or who have not put into writing what it is they want, or who are not capable of negotiating in good faith, as we see with the North Koreans, or who have hidden agendas that they're not negotiating in good faith in the long haul, but in the immediacy they may be. And certainly, I think the Russians were negotiating the Soviets in good faith in the, in the 1980s, because with the dissolution of the empire, the dissolution, not the disillusion, dissolution, the breakup of the of the Russian Empire into its uh, client states, and Russia and the United States cooperated on helping the Russians uh, take down a lot of their nuclear weapons, and a lot of their stuff was antiquated and dangerous, and and recycled the, the nuclear material for more beneficial things like nuclear power. But there's certainly no doubt in anybody's mind that the Russians interfered in our election. Is this new? Of course not. The Russians have been interfering in our internal affairs ever since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917-1918. One of the first things Lenin did when the Bolsheviks took over was to establish a secret state police and to establish a spy agency and a spy ring to go around the world and try and stir up trouble. And this was already here. We already had problems with communists and anarchists and Bolsheviks, even before the Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks took over in 1917. We had an anarchist set off a bomb of terrorists at the beginning of the 19th century on Wall Street. We had our president, McKinley, assassinated by an anarchist communist. So all these things are not new. But they're certainly great arguing points when you're on the outs, when you're the Democrats and the Republicans are ruling both House, Senate and the White House. Although, as we can see, that doesn't always mean that we're going to get through all the things that we want. Because there's disagreements even within the parties themselves. And again, these are negotiations that have to be addressed. So it comes down to the guys and the gals and the, the agreements that are made are only as good as the people that are making them. They're only as good as the people that are making them. Still, the negotiations, even for bills in the House and the Senate, are often carried on in private. We saw that there were uh, closed committee hearings for Peter Strauss and the people that are implicated in this FBI scandal, uh, having had prejudices towards one candidate or another. And this is a throwback to the 1910s and 20s when the FBI got into trouble for being on President Calvin Coolidge's team and not on the Democrats' team and, and also aiding and abetting uh, illegal activities. So we're back at the 1925 20, 20, era where uh, President, uh, I'm sorry, it was Harding and President Coolidge had to it was Harding's administration who utilized the FBI as their own secret police against the opposition, and so Coolidge had to shake them up, and Herbert Hoover had to shake them up. And they were also reformed in the 1930s by, you guessed it, FDR. So there are shakeups in our various branches of executive government from time to time, and it's necessary. I mean, it's just necessary. But the 
inside negotiations, I'm not sure that we want to be in on all of that. I mean, the information is certainly over overload and burdensome. And I don't know how many people really care about what the president said in the press conference or what transpired in the meeting with Putin other than people inside the beltway or talk radio show hosts. And judging by the reaction from the radio show host on the Salem networks, it seems to me that it's, it's not as big a deal as, as is perceived by these folks who are on the radio. And I'm not sure that it's worth all the time and effort. I think there are other things that we should be focusing on. Nevertheless, it is a big deal for the left. But I again remind everybody that the president under the Constitution has the authority to go and talk to whoever he wants to about trade agreements, about arms agreements, about uh, peace and war. A declaration of war has to go through the Congress. But the president is the guy who says most of the time, who says, look, we need to fend off these people. They're attacking us. They bombed our, our naval base at Pearl Harbor, or they're sending an army from Mexico to cross into Texas, which is now part of the Union. It's now a state. And there may even be times when the president may initiate aggressive actions and ask for permission later, like in the Gulf of Tonkin. And I'm not sure that that's wrong in and of itself, because as again, as I have said over and over, self-preservation is the first law. Well, you know, if there's a speedboat, motorboat coming at your ship and you think it's full of, even though your ship's a thousand times bigger and you think it's full of explosives and it's going to blow a hole in the side of your ship, then you better start shooting at it. Now, under President Obama, the orders were not to shoot and to even give up without a fight. Not so with this president, and I, I, I think that's exactly the message that we should send to the world. The problem if we send the message of weakness is that people will test that, just as the Japanese did in World War II. They had no idea of our, our potential might and the size and the, the depth and scope of our, our country, of our resolve, and of our manufacturing capabilities. I mean, we manufactured a thousand times the amount of armaments that Japan did or Germany. It was just incredible. And so if we give the message that we are weak or we are not going to fight back or we're going to give and yield, then we're going to invite further incursions. We're going to invite further and more conflicts. And the the best way is to allow the president to speak privately. And then when he's ready to bring a public document to the Senate for ratification. And I, I just don't think there's any better way. I don't see any way. Now, you look at the Soviet Union, which is basically a dictatorship now, and Erdogan in Turkey has become a dictator. And they can say and do things on behalf of the country, really without much approval from anybody. And even if they do have a a Senate or a legislative body that approves, it's been so stacked with their own people that it's just a rubber stamp. We don't have that. Here's the thing. If you bring every little thing to the Senate, it's going to 
bound up all of its time and arguing and debating over nuances that may not even be in the final program or policy or treaty or agenda that is presented by the executive branch, by the president and by the Commerce Department and by the Defense Department and all the other departments. And so you're going to end up having endless debates over things that are not even relevant. You say we have that now. Yes, we do. We really do. We're, we're seeing this. And now this is this goes back to what I was saying earlier when I had David and Herman in the bylaws committee. And all they did was argue and, and debate every little minute point in an effort to obstruct and block any progress, any movement forward, any changes whatsoever. And this is what the Democrats are doing. They don't want to see any of the policies of Obama change. They don't want to see any step backward on socialist agendas. And they don't care if the majority of the country is opposed to it because they think they're right and righteous and they think that their cause is just. And like I said last week, the, the problem with the main problem with communism, Bolshevism, and Karl Marx and Engels' philosophy is that the end justifies the means. And that brings it down to an immoral level, an unethical level. Uh, and you have to have some rules and regulations. Even if you go into war, you have to have rules and regulations. You have to have an agreement by both sides that we will honor this. We will not torture your, your soldiers who are captured or that spies are considered uh, executable. And I mean, there's a number of things that you go through that we will not use chemical weapons. Uh, we will not use biological weapons and not everybody subscribes to this. And this is what we saw with Iraq when we went in in the first and second Iraq war, the first war in the 1990s, then secretary of state Baker had a conversation with the secretary of state of Iraq. And he said to them, you're not participating in the Geneva Convention, and I want to tell you that if you use chemical weapons against us, we will use nuclear weapons against you. Of course, he did not mean that, but they didn't know that. So we had a deterrent, even though they were not uh, participants in and signees of the Geneva Convention, which bans the use of, of chemical weapons. And this came about after the horrors of World War One and the use of mustard gas. And we still see countries in the Middle East using chemical weapons. We just saw it with Syria using chemical weapons against some of their own people. And the president responded, our president Trump responded by bombing out their air force. <laughs> he took out the Syrian air force in one fell swoop. And now the air force for Syria are Russians and the Russian air forces in Syria. And we are saying to the Syrians and the Russians, you know, if we have to bomb you again, we'll give you a heads up so you can get your airplane. The Russians can get their airplanes out. But if they're on the ground when we bomb, it's too bad. We're going to bomb you. And a couple of hundred Russians were actually killed in some of the United States bombings in Syria over the past year or two. And there are troops, American troops on the ground, even as we speak. It's close to the end of it here. My gosh, it goes fast. I hope some of this made sense to you and that you enjoyed it. And remember that I am Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and you can now enjoy your radio with me every Sunday. 
And so here we are. Thank you for listening to The Answer Tampa Bay. And I'm out of here. Have a good one, everybody. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.